every word Jesus said is more permanent and more enduring than this planet we call home. Let that sink into your mind a moment. The only thing you can really count on is what Jesus said. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. The Bible is filled with prophecy, but how should we then live with events prophesied that may never come to pass in our lifetime? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom will conclude his current series with part 16 of The Future According to Jesus. We have arrived at the end of the famous passage, known as the Olivet Discourse, named after the Mount of Olives, from which it was given by Christ Himself, as recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. In the discourse, Christ Jesus delivers a series of exhortations in light of the prophecies He's just made. Not only were they meant for Christ's disciples that heard Him that day and in that era, His teaching is meant for every disciple, in every time and in every place. When you consider the future according to Jesus, have you come to trust and obey Him, turning away from all sin while believing in Him in order to be saved from the wrath to come? Consider the matter carefully as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. I tried to think, what is it that we as human beings believe to be absolutely certain and unshakable? I mean, all human beings not just us as believers. Well, what do we believe to be absolutely certain and unshakable? Really, in the end, there's only one thing. We talk about death and taxes, but you know, while it appears that way, sometimes taxes for a time can go away because of anarchy or whatever. But death is the constant reality. That's the one no one in his right mind denies. If Jesus doesn't return, every single person listening to this message will die. It's a reality you can't change. Jesus is saying the events he describes in Mark 13 are more certain than that. You can depend on it. You can trust that the end of the age will unfold just as Jesus has described it to us. There's a third exhortation in this paragraph, and it's accept the mystery surrounding the end. There's mystery. It's not all filled out for us. Specifically, the timing in specific. Verse 32. We know the duration. We saw that first. But notice what Jesus says in verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Now, this verse has been a serious stumbling block for people on both sides of the theological spectrum. On the conservative end, people have been troubled by Jesus, who is God, admitting ignorance of anything. On the liberal end of the spectrum, they're troubled by Jesus' consciousness of his own deity, because he here calls himself the Son. That is, he claims to have a special relationship with the Father and to be aware of that relationship. But let's see what Jesus is saying here. First of all, notice the expression, that day or hour. That has to be primarily a reference to the events surrounding the second coming, 
We know that from Matthew's account. Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For because the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. So it primarily relates to the events surrounding the second coming. But it also probably refers more generally to all the events that surround the end, the events that are described in the Olivet Discourse. No one knows the day or the hour of these things. And then, of course, Jesus defines what he means. Notice he says, verse 32, not even the angels in heaven. As involved in the plan of redemption as the angels are, they serve God, they are ministering spirits for the saints, Hebrews says, they have no clue when the end will come. Nor the Son. Now remember, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. As God, he's by nature omniscient. So although he can choose not to call something to his mind, as God does with our sins, he can never fail to know something. As God, it's impossible for him not to know anything. So why didn't Jesus know the timing of the events of the end? It's because of what theologians call the kenosis, the self-emptying. When he came to earth, he voluntarily restricted what theologians call the independent exercise of his divine attributes. In other words, let me put it to you more simply. He determined while he was on the earth not to use any of his divine attributes unless the Spirit directed him to do so. He wanted to live and did live as a human among humans. He didn't cheat. You know, there are a lot of apocryphal gospels in which Jesus as a baby is doing all these miracles. You know, he's... he's creating havoc in the neighborhood just for fun. That isn't how Jesus lived at all. He didn't cheat. He lived like you and I live. And he only brought his divine attributes to bear at the direction of the Spirit. And so, in that state, he did not know the day or the hour of the end of the age. Because the Spirit didn't direct him to use his divine omniscience to know that. It's interesting, though, and I can't make a strong point here, but I think it is interesting. When you come to Acts 1, after the resurrection and the day of ascension, Jesus doesn't say that he doesn't know. He just says this in Acts 1. They were asking him, Lord, is this this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has established by his own authority. Jesus adds here in chapter 13 of Mark, verse 32, but the Father alone knows the day and the hour. Folks, underline that verse, star that verse, and the next time somebody writes a book called 88 Reasons Jesus Must Return in 1988, come back to this verse. Forget what they say, however logical it might seem, however moving, however well-presented. Don't even think about setting dates or believing those who do in reference to the end of the age. In fact, can I even encourage you to avoid something else? I know it's well-intentioned, but I hear Christians say things like this. 
I just know the Lord is going to come back in my lifetime. How? Have you had revelation? Why does it say no one knows the time or the hour? Jesus has to come back soon. You don't know that. Jesus told the disciples on the Mount of Olives just before the ascension, it was not for us to know as his disciples. Notice what he says in Acts 1, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times. The Greek word is chronos, the clock time. It's not for you to know the clock time when it's going to happen, nor the epochs. The Greek word is kairos. It's, it's a word which means seasons of time. Not only can you not know the clock time, you can't even know the season, the epoch. So give it up. Don't set dates and don't even set seasons when Jesus must return. William Hendrickson, with whose eschatology I disagree, but who has a profound point here, says, curiosity is wonderful. For nosiness, intrusiveness, impertinence, there is no excuse. There's a fifth and final exhortation Jesus makes to us in light of his prediction of the future. It's that we must be alert to the end. Look at verse 33. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. The Greek word here translated take heed means pay attention, watch out, be on guard. And then he adds, keep on the alert. It's interesting, in the four verses, 33 to 37, using three different Greek words, Jesus tells us the same thing. Be on the alert. Keep on the alert. Why? Verse 33, for because you do not know when the appointed time will come. Just like the angels don't know, and just like the Son during the incarnation didn't know, you and I don't know. The events Jesus describes in this sermon could begin to unfold tonight with the rapture. It might be next month. It might be next year. It might be in ten years. Or it might be in a thousand years. That's why we have to keep alert. Now to help us understand, Mark includes just the first of the five parables Jesus gave his disciples that day. Look at verse 34. You want to know what I mean by keep alert? It's like this. It's like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Jesus says, here's how you should think about staying alert as you anticipate the end, which could happen in your lifetime, could begin with events unfolding tonight could be after we're dead and buried, could be in our children's generation, our grandchildren's generation, or in a thousand years. Here's how you do it. He said, imagine a wealthy businessman who goes away on a journey. Now, in the first century, before airplane travel, you could determine your departure time, but you really couldn't determine your arrival time, certainly not your arrival time back home. And even if this man knew exactly when he would arrive home, he didn't tell his slaves for the obvious reason of their accountability. When he left his house for the journey, he put his slaves in charge of maintaining his property. 
There were slaves at different levels in every household. There were some who were really quite professional and educated. And so he put some of them in charge in various responsibilities. Literally, the Greek text says, giving to his slaves the authority, each one his work. This man assigned to each slave a specific task and gave him the authority to carry it out. One of the slaves was assigned the responsibility of doorkeeper or porter. He was responsible in this large house. There would have been a gate, a gate that issued onto the street, probably a busy street in the center of town. He was responsible to keep track of who entered this wealthy man's estate and who left it. And the master gave him the specific order, stay alert because you don't know when I'm coming back. So that when I come, I can be properly received and I'll be able to enter my own estate. That's the parable. Now Jesus applies it in verse 35. Therefore, be on the alert For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Now the meaning of the parable is clear. Jesus is obviously the master of the house. He will soon leave his disciples and go on a long journey for an undisclosed period of time. That's a reference to the ascension and to the period of time between the ascension and the second coming. While he's gone, he will assign to each of his slaves, that's us, a specific task in his household, which, of course, later in the New Testament, we discover his household is also called what? The church. And so he assigns these tasks. Whatever our specific task might be, in a very real sense, each one of us has also been assigned the task of the porter, the doorkeeper. We must keep alert because our master is going to return and we need to be ready for him personally, individually. That's part of our responsibility. But we don't know when he's coming. Now, the next four expressions describe the four Roman watches of the night. In the evening describes the first watch from six to nine The next expression, at midnight, describes the entire period of time from 9 to 12 a.m., the second watch. This is how the Romans calculated the night. You've heard the first watch, the second watch, the third watch, and the fourth watch. That's what he's describing here. When the rooster crows was from 12 o'clock to 3 a.m., the third watch, and in the morning, literally before dawn, is 3 to 6 a.m., the fourth watch. The master of the house says, listen, and Jesus now applying it to himself, says, you don't know when I'm coming. You don't know if it's going to be the first watch of the night or the second watch of the night or the third watch or the fourth watch. Now, do you see anything unusual about that list? It's all at night. Now, again, that's hard for us to fully appreciate because sometimes we enjoy traveling at night, right? Put the kids in the back and let them sleep. It's a lot quieter. There's some sanity. But they didn't travel at night. By and large, they traveled during the day. And so this is really odd. The master says, I'm going to come at the most unlikely time, and I want you to be alert for it. 
This is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 44. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming, what? At an hour when you do not think he will. It'll be the oddest time. It won't make sense. Which, by the way, is another argument against date setting, right? Jesus will return at the very time no one expects, and he will expect when he comes to be properly greeted by all of those who are his slaves. That's us. So imagine how horrible it would have been for a slave to have been assigned this responsibility, and notice the end of verse 36, he should come suddenly and find you what? Asleep. What does that mean? Obviously, he's not talking about physical sleep. He's not saying, you know, as a Christian, you just, you just need to stay up all the time because he could come at any point. He's talking in this sense, to be asleep here means to be morally and spiritually disengaged. That's how Paul uses it in Romans, you remember, when he says, wake up, wake up out of the sleep of darkness and sin. It means to be asleep means to be living with no conscious awareness that our Lord's coming. It means to be living life as if you really don't believe He's coming. Thinking He's not coming. Be on the alert so that doesn't happen. Now using this brief parable, Jesus explains to us how we must respond to the prophecies He's made in the Olivet Discourse. And it's to us. Look at verse 37. I love this. This is really clear. In verse 37, he says, now remember, he's talking to how many disciples at this point? Four. Four are the ones who asked the question. He's giving them this message, and he says, what I say to you, I say to all. All of my disciples, all of my followers, be on the alert. What Jesus was saying to the four disciples on the Mount of Olives that day, he was saying to all of the 11 disciples And he was saying to all of his disciples in all times and in all places, be on the alert. You don't know when I'm coming. You don't know when all these things are going to happen. Now this parable teaches us that to respond to Jesus' prophecy about the future, to be alert, we must first of all keep watching. We are to stay on the alert for him. The word be alert here is used three times in this paragraph, is a Greek word you'll recognize. It's Gregorio, from which we get the name Gregory, which means the watchful, vigilant one. It literally means stay awake, be alert. It came to mean be in a constant state of readiness. This word is used to be aware of dangers in the New Testament. Dangers like temptation, a thief, a lion, false teachers, an opposing army. Those are the kind of scenarios in which this word is used. Here it's used of a slave assigned to keep the door and watch for his master. You know what Jesus is saying? Listen, live like you really believe I'm coming back. Keep that in your mind. Be on the alert to that reality. It's like Paul says in Titus 2. You remember he says the grace of God has appeared, teaching us that we should you know, deny ungodliness and worldly lust, that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. We should live what? Looking. I love that. 
Literally, that's what it says. We should live looking, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. What does it mean to live looking? It means you live with a constant awareness. You don't let time pass. Let me ask you this question. Let me just ask you pointedly. When is the last time you were truly aware that Jesus might actually come and it affected the choices that you made? That's watching. Jesus says, keep watching. Keep watching. Secondly, keep working. We are to faithfully serve our master while he's away. In this parable, Jesus says, the master of the house left, and what did he do to each of the slaves? He assigned them each a duty, each a responsibility. You have a responsibility while your master is away. And not only are you to keep watching for his return, but you're to keep working. What is our duty? What is your duty? First of all, it's to carry out the specific task that he's assigned each of us in his own household. In other words, he's given you specific gifts to use in the church. Are you using them? Are you being faithful? But more broadly than that, we're to make disciples of Jesus Christ. For you, it might be going to work tomorrow or going to school tomorrow and remembering that your master has left you with a mission. He's coming, and he left you with a job to do, and that's to make disciples, to tell others the good news. It's not about living a comfortable life and doing what you want and having fun and enjoying vacations. All those things are fine, but that's not what life is about. We're here assigned a role from our master. You know why this is so important? It's important because of how this sermon about the future ends. Mark doesn't record it for us, but Matthew does. Turn to the last of the sermon on the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 25. Matthew 25, and I want you to look at verse 46. Here's how the Olivet Discourse ends. It ends with the judgment of those who survived the tribulation. Remember the judgment of the, called the judgment of the nations or the judgment of the sheep and the goats? It's the judgment of those still alive at the end of the tribulation. And this is what Jesus says. This is how he finishes the sermon. There will be those who will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. Listen, folks, that should drive the work we do while we're watching and waiting for our Lord's return. That's a reality. Look at the people around you tomorrow, in your family, in the school you go to, in the workplace, in your neighborhood, and realize that those people you look at and see and know and have lunch with, those people will end up in one of those two destinies. Either eternal punishment or eternal life. And it's our job to carry the message. We are to keep watching and we're to keep working. Because we don't know when the master of the house will return. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled, The Future According to Jesus. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. And Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, in light of the entire sermon that our Lord preached and we've studied together over these days, I think it comes back to me in those familiar and encouraging words from Titus 2, and that is the grace of God that we've experienced as followers of Jesus Christ. That grace teaches us to live in a way that honors Him in this life, and Paul says to live looking, to live looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us. And so that's how we have to live. We live looking. I hope that's how you think about the return of Christ, even more so in light of our study together. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.